Welcome to Church Hurts and the good, the bad, and the ugly about church, religion, and spirituality with a dash of recovery thrown in. If you've ever had questions about the church, maybe a bit jaded in your attitude toward religion, well, you've come to the right place. Our host, he was an honors philosophy student, ordained a Presbyterian minister, planted three churches, taught at a prestigious university, was teaching pastor at a mega church, and was an executive coach. But now, now he's just an aging curmudgeon who never quits asking the question why. The host of Church Hurts and Dr. John Bash. When the virus called Corona hit the shores of Southern California, I was determined to practice the spiritual principles I've learned in recent years. Believing that God is in charge of every molecule under heaven, I had good reason not to get all stressed out. Then to the equation was added civil unrest and political monologues destroying joy and fellowship on Facebook and social media. I very consciously tried not to get caught up in what seemed like so much folly in the dialogue. Disengaging is simply not in my DNA, so I focused my attention on learning more about the history and background to provide meaningful context to the very real human history we were living. My mental meandering ended up taking me to a place I wasn't expecting at a time I wasn't expecting and through a location I preferred to avoid, Washington, D.C. Now, follow my thinking here. We're a nation founded mostly by English malcontents or Christian refugees or adventurous, restless pioneers, depending on what version of the story you want to tell. Yet when my overly visual mind travels to Washington, D.C., my senses are assaulted not by Christian symbols or architecture at all, In fact, there is nothing uniquely British about the city either. Then I remembered this signature American city was designed by a Frenchman, Pierre-Charles L'Enfant, who preferred to be called Peter. Now, don't get me wrong, just because he has a fancy French name doesn't mean he wasn't a patriot. He was with General Washington at Valley Forge as part of the Continental Army. No other credentials are needed. Few dispute his dominant influence on the design of our capital city. He was also commissioned by General Lafayette to do a portrait of George Washington and became friends with Alexander Hamilton. What visual images are coming to your mind as I bring up Washington, D.C.? Certain buildings? You know, Architecture 101, you were taught in the seventh grade. Come on, Doric, iconic, Corinthian, ringing a bell. To see if this mental meandering can take us anywhere, I've invited back to Church Hurt's hand an unlikely character, a London tour guide. I know it sounds weird, but his specialty is the classics. So welcome back to Church Hurt and Englishman, Ben Virgo. Hey, it's great to be back, Jack. You know, Ben, my first thought is that after the Revolutionary Wars, our founders threw in with a firm reliance on the protection of divine providence. They threw that out the window and decided it was time to 
somehow get into being an empire? What is with all of our neoclassical architecture in our capital city from an Englishman's point of view? Yeah, it's absolutely fascinating that when a nation decides it wants to look stable, it wants to, it wants to look like it has a, a heritage, it wants to look like it has a foundation, it goes back to classical foundations. And we go back literally to uh, the structures that we find in ancient Greece, especially Athens. We find Corinthian columns. We find Athenian uh, design in pillared structures with porticos and so on. It does. It is a fascinating fact, isn't it, that uh, all over the world, uh, buildings which uh, <laughs> look close, more at home in Athens look perfectly at home wherever they are, because people have always done this instinctively. But it was about more than just that they were an empire, wasn't it? What was it uniquely about Athens and about mm. Greece that they might have had in mind or even why we know Jefferson was the original one to have some kind of sketches and go in that direction. And there was nothing uniquely Christian about Jefferson himself, yeah, but he was true. a key figure. They had to be thinking of something to go to Greece, right? Yes. Yes. And this, there's a complicated and there's a simple answer and they both shake hands in the middle. The simple answer is the grass is greener on the other side. The complicated mm -hmm. answer is history tells us of a time in which the uh, Athenians promoted and pioneered a model of democracy which should be taught and followed all over the world. However, as I say, the grass is greener on the other side. We look back through rose-tinted spectacles, what we expect to be a sort of a golden age of, of democracy and a golden age of peace. However, if you read more than a, the most superficial reading of what happened then. No, no, no. It was corruption like you find in every age. Wait, For wait, example, wait, wait, wait. Let's get first, though, to what the democracy thing. How did that come about? Because at this point in time, now we're talking 400 plus years before Christ. Mm. So we're picturing these people in Greece. So far, the world is we don't know a whole lot about it. So how do we get how do we get to democracy? Because bef what was before democracy? Yeah, well, you'd have you would have monarchy. The word arch, a r c h, monarch, one mon one, uh, and then demos arch, demark democracy, <laughs> democracy. Uh, those that's the the demos of the people, uh, aristocracy. That's that's the, the 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 leadership of the good, and we'd find uh, that the, uh, the, the 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 demos were the people of Greece. And they would vote on how, or sorry, of the people of Athens, and they would vote for who should rule them, uh, and uh, that was that was the origin of what we now call democracy. Let's at least throw a bone to the philosophers here, shall we? So, in Greece, in Athens, you actually had an elevation of people coming together and talking about ideas. It was literally a valid profession, the greatest thinkers coming together to just really interact where we get the Socratic dialogue from, right? We're, yeah. we're going back and forth, learning by interacting. And they were just really asking the question, how should, how can a society get along with one another and deal with all of our foibles and make it work? And the first ones to say, instead of getting a good leader, we can actually find a way to let the people themselves do it, right? Yeah, that was well, at least that was the way it was. It was uh, told that, and that is what's so attractive 
when people look back because they say, oh, that's what they thought. However, there were people who were over the decisions that we will have the people in charge who won from it. They were, they were people who got, who, who, who did very well out of the idea they should promote uh, democracy. Shall I tell you a little, little about one of them? Please. So, for example, we have the, one of the greatest uh, heroes of, uh, of ancient of Athens was Pericles. He is a guy who, he achieves full employment in Athens and he's a terribly popular figure. Uh, but the closer we look, the more we realize, well, the way he got full employment and the way he uh, got the people to vote for him was all the allies of Athens. They had saved up money so that they could protect themselves. And Pericles says, we'll look after the money. We'll look after it in Athens. Just bring it in here and we'll lock it up and we'll keep it. And guess what he does with it? He uses it to build all the temples. And who are going to build them? Who's actually going to put stone on stone? The people of Athens. And so he takes the money from the neighboring states, Argos, the various other states that were around the islands, and he ends up giving it to the people. And what do they do in return? They vote him back into power. And so this great picture of the most beautiful democracy turns out to be a very familiar story of corruption and uh, of, of a man paying for votes. And the longest lasting um, article that comes from this is, of course, the beautiful city of Athens. <laughs> and, and, and so really, I mean, it wasn't church back then. This was to the temple gods um, or the gods with temples, however you want to put it, but still religion and politics from the beginning. Uh, so true. Right? So we're Nothing all messed up. Before democracy gets off the ground, religion gets into it and messes it up. That is such a good point. That is exactly right. It is nothing to do... That, that whole corruption that we see now through... Uh, people criticize Christianity. It's been there hundreds of years before there was Christianity. People have always used religion to get their ends. Okay, so now that we're giving atheists some talking points on church hurts, and um, <clears throat> let's um, as as we as we think about um, kind of a cartoonish view of those Greek philosophers and what I brought about, and I said it got brutal, um, or I, I'm I'm thinking it, it got a lot worse than that. We're seeing corruption, but it got worse, didn't it? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, it was, frankly, uh, it's very important that people should know this because uh, even a lot of Christians look back and say, oh, the Greeks have a lot to teach us. No, 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 no. You must understand the Greeks were, they were the, the Nazis of the ancient world. I mean, if you read Homer's Iliad, who's the hero? The hero is Achilles. What does he do? He kills and he kills. A hero in the Greek world, he killed he killed again, and then he killed some more. The one who cared about others in the Iliad was Hector, and he's trying to care for his family. He's trying to care for Troy. He's trying to protect his kingdom. Oh, Achilles kills him, and he's dealt with. He's gone, and Achilles goes on to the end. If you watch the film of um, the, the story of the Iliad, Troy, in the film, they have to make Achilles care because the film was made in the Christian era in which we know, no, a good guy is someone who cares for others. We live in the era of Nelson Mandela. If Nelson Mandela was, uh, was alive at that time, coming out of prison and saying, I forgive my jailers, people would have said, you're a fool, you're a fool. Back then, you show no mercy. You kill, you kill, you kill again. 
So even when Achilles goes into the underworld uh, and there he sees his enemies, Agamemnon, Virgil has them still hating and loathing each other. And there's no resolution. Classical era was not a, a, a an era of forgiveness. It was not an era that was heart constructive. I mean, their greatest thinker, Socrates, they kill him. They poison him simply because he is thinking, because he is answer, asking questions. You will have... Uh, uh, it's interesting you bring up the, the term the Socratic dialogue because that's a brilliant way to argue. Let's talk about this. Let's consider possible ways to uh, to uh, to come to a consensus. But Socrates doing that in Greece gets poisoned to death, and so it's a uh, it's important to understand the Greeks had ideas, but they did not uh, they didn't see them come to the to a great fruition. So I'm thinking, too, we got to get Rome into this. we got to get enough people to blame. It's kind of curious because the whole Roman Empire, um, I'm wondering if the founders having, you know, George Washington, after he left office, I mean, he, he was sought after by leaders around the world. That's why Mount Vernon is so interesting. His leaders came there just to be with a great figure who had shown down the British Empire. But I'm thinking, you know, this Roman stuff, to what degree was it kind of, are we going to be the new Rome? That's what, that's what makes me curious. Why would you put up these structures that remind us, too, of the Roman Empire? There's n certainly nothing Christian, you know, about that. And we talk about this as, oh, well, we are such a Christian nation. Mm. Really? So why are we building these Roman-esque structures? Yeah, I think partly the reason we look back to it is because what happened when the Roman Empire fell and then we just had the Dark Ages for centuries and people looked back to a time when at least there were buildings that stood up. Uh, there's a rather hilarious story about Charlemagne, you know, uh, Charlemagne in, in the 800s. He built some buildings, very proud of them, these wonderful buildings he built. This is 800 years after the great uh, Roman era and some people came from the Far East and they came and they saw these buildings that Charlemagne had built. And uh, Charlemagne's historians records that they, they laughed with joy when they saw them. But historians from the Far East apparently write down uh, that, uh, that actually they laughed derisively at these pathetic modern buildings. Uh, you see, we look back to a time before our time, hoping that that will explain things. So you find, uh, Jack, you've seen, I'm sure, people who look back into their family tree thinking, oh, this will explain, uh, you know, you find someone in your family tree was in a circus. And you say, well, that's why I have this flamboyant streak. Or you'll say one of your ancestors was in the military. And you say, oh, that would explain my temper or whatever, uh, or my, my efficiency. But, uh, but the, the, looking back, we think it will explain something. And, of course, the great literature that comes from the, the Roman time is uh, it's a great example of rhetoric. But rhetoric is more of a enjoyment of argument. It isn't necessarily an establishing point. You know, Cicero and Caesar and these characters arguing with each other and, uh, and, and arguing, uh, Cicero arguing in court and Catiline and so on. They're not building. They're finding ways to shoot the other guy down. It's when Christianity comes it's when you find the grassroots being loved in spite of their faith commitments, because Christians see, well, our saviour, he loved people. That's when you start seeing some stability coming through. And that is catalogued 
by secular historians, Tom Holland, Rodney Stark, the sociologist, people have seen. Look at the sources. That was the difference Christianity made. So I, and this is just my brain, so I'm going back and I'm thinking of this, trying to make sense of it. But I also remember that these founders were influenced uh, in the period of the the century that featured some really prominent English preachers mm. who came over here and some of them tell stories about them, but it had to be significant because in England that really doesn't have this kind of architecture so much, they certainly did um, send to the Englishmen some of their preachers. Um, that And talk about Wesley Whitfield coming here, yeah. um, what that meant um, yeah. from your perspective. Well, it's a very, you make a very good point there about the, the buildings here, I would say. And it's important for your listeners to hear, uh, who, who haven't been to Britain, that Britain has nothing like the magnificence of Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is a city that was designed with those great wide mouths and that, those extraordinary and magnificent uh, memorials, the Jefferson, the Washington, the, 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 the Tower, uh, and London has nothing like that. But uh, interestingly, what we did have were some some people who got the point <laughs> that the fathers, uh, I think some of the founding fathers of the states got, which was that the God who rules everything has showed himself. And when he showed himself, he showed himself like this. He came as a baby. <laughs> And he came being born in a stink, in a stable. And the magnificence could not, the angels couldn't be held back. They're singing on a, on, a, on a hillside. What's he doing? Glory to God in the highest. Here he is. Some people who got that were, uh, for example, you've named Wesley and Whitfield there. There were these guys who had been trying to be good. They'd been trying to be moral. But they tried and tried. And found, I can't keep this up. I know I got to change, but I I can't keep it up. I'm, they were even in college together or something, weren't they? Yeah, Oxford University, yeah. A, a, a minor college in Britain. But uh, <laughs> <laughs> I speak as someone who studied in London. But uh, <laughs> but yeah, they were in London and Oxford together, and they were so uh, they were they were persecuted or they were at least ridiculed by the people, the other students because they were trying and trying and trying, and they were known as the Holy Club. But uh, what happened was that at different times, these two men came to understand that the good news isn't good instructions. <laughs> the good news isn't a good philosophy. The good news is a message that the God who is the Holy One has come into his creation so that he can die to save us, so that he can deal with the fact that we don't keep it up, that he can deal with our wickedness and our inconsistency and our idolatry and take the blame himself, taking our punishment in the place of, in our place. And uh, the, these okay, men, okay, the, wait. Yeah, yeah. So, so here you got the message and that message set those men up against basically the church of England. They, got, they were right. getting in trouble in London, a lot of trouble. Right. That is so true. And that is so important for people to hear. I think uh, I've taken you before when we were in London into a church building where Whitfield preached. But having preached what it says in the Bible, the church authorities said, you are not preaching here anymore. 
because just like in ancient Greece, there were people who were running the institution who did not like, who, who did not exemplify a gracious approach. And uh, these men, uh, they, they, they was gr the greatest. I mean, the, the Greek gods, they're not even nice. I mean, if you read anything about the Greek gods, they're not nice. They are just uh, manipulative and wicked. But the God who these people, the, the God who the church in England was supposed to represent is gracious, forgiving, full of grace and truth. And they closed down Wesley and Whitfield. But Whitfield and Wesley made their way to the States. Whitfield went over the Atlantic 13 times, died in New England. Buried in New Hampshire. I've seen hey, his. Hey, Ben, uh, I don't know if you know this one, but <clears throat> Ben Franklin, who was no Christian, um, had um, heard of Whitfield and actually got to where he corresponded with Whitfield. But Whitfield was known. So it kind of makes sense to me in a new way now that you're saying it that they were received so well in the United States because they were kind of rebels back in England. So they were all in a sense against the establishment in their own ways. So they found these receptive crowds in the colonies with Whitfield, thousands of people, which is hard to imagine as we sit here two inches from a microphone, there yeah. were no microphones. Right. And there were thousands. And anyway, <clears throat> so Ben Franklin goes and says, I'm going to go see the guy, but he was also known for taking offerings. <laughs> and he would take these big offerings and help the poor and orphans were a big deal for Whitfield. Oh yeah. And and Franklin said, but I'm not going to give anything. And when he went, he had copper, silver, and gold in his pocket. And as he listened to him talk, he, he said, okay, I'm going to give the copper. And he talked some more. He said, okay, I'm going to give the silver. And then he ended up giving everything he had and yeah, yeah. wishing that he had had more. And they became fast friends. Uh, Whitfield being clear, he was trying to convert um, Franklin to Christianity, which never happened. Um, but you know, it was it was interesting. Still, a great appreciation um, in those days, even by founders who weren't Christians. Yes, yes. And the beautiful thing is the ability to have a friendship in the middle of it all, isn't it? How rare in our time to find people. Well, when you do see it, it is beautiful. When you find people who don't agree, but can still be friends. How rare. What a strange thought for our time, eh? Really? Oh, my. Um, yeah. But so, know, yeah, I, that was a great story. Yeah. Just kind of underline some of this. And I was reading in 1832, Congress commissioned a statue from the sculpture, sculptor Horatio Green, Greenell to mark the 100th anniversary of Washington's birth. And he pictured the enthroned Washington, which pictured Washington as a Roman god. That wow. was a design that was fortunately rejected. Yeah, <laughs> right? quite. That's no. a good idea. Yeah, uh, I, I could talk to that a little bit. Carry on with your thing. No, no. As so, anyway, so we do have this uh, the the impact of the of these British preachers who were coming over here, that that did influence the founding. But I'm I guess I'm still just a little bit confused when I when I combine this classics in this Christianity mix. Is there anything else yeah. you can just add to help us understand that a little better? Because we have this resurgence of classics now, which is so interesting. Talk to me. You're, I mean, that's your education as classics. So talk, yeah. talk to me. Yeah, well, the, the classical era is fascinating, but it is only really, you can only really, I, I propose you could really only see it thoroughly when you have an understanding of the truth that sets a person free. So, for example, you try to understand how Julius Caesar's mind worked. He's a man who is born into the aristocracy. He doesn't need to pretend he's important. 
He doesn't have to fake an accent. He doesn't have to buy the right clothes. He's born in them. He grows up in them. And he decides, he, he sees a statue of, of Alexander when he was 30 years old and he weeps. He says, by the time Alexander was, by the time uh, Alexander was my age, he'd already, com- com- he'd already conquered half the world. And he wants to go and conquer. He wants to go. So Caesar goes off and uh, in due course, he managed to get control of armies and the men love him. He actually goes into battle with them. And he's famous for being an incredibly, uh, incredibly effective general. He will hear there's another army of, of, of our enemies, of barbarians or of, of warring tribes. Uh, it's three days away. And he says, then we go now. And they pack and they march. And no one expects when they suddenly arrive, attack and win. So Caesar is incredible. He sees across the top of, the, of Europe, he sees across the, 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 the ocean, he sees Britain. And he says, then we'll go and attack that. We'll go and see what there is over there. Maybe there's gold. Now, what's interesting about this is there were many in Rome who didn't even believe there were other lands, the other side of the sea. So mm-hmm. try and put this in perspective. Here's a man, he's like a space traveler in our time. He's going to see undiscovered land. Meanwhile, in Rome, you have a character like Cicero, who is brilliant with words, but who wasn't born from money. He was an aspirational guy. He's always faking the accent. He's going to the right school. He's wearing the right clothes. He's doing all the right things to get himself into those groups. So there's Caesar saying, I've got it. I don't care. Who cares? You know, you can say the right words. You wear the right clothes. You went to the right school. And Cicero saying, if only, if only I could be in that. And you have Cicero writing to Caesar, trying to get favors for his friends. And Caesar, he's trying to find other worlds. Now, this is fascinating because I think anyone hearing that says, that's interesting, I didn't know that, and I can relate to it. I've seen people who have been from wealth or have been from comfort, and they don't seem to care about it that much. But I've seen other people for whom that is everything. And in a sense, what's interesting about that is there's nothing new. There's nothing new under the sun. And that's, uh, how do I, where do I get that from? Where does that phrase come from? It comes from the Bible. There's nothing new under the sun. And so it, we mustn't look back thinking that the classics are going to somehow going to fix us. Those were two of the greatest characters in, cla- in the classical era. And we see they're trying to find their way in the dark. They're trying to grasp something where we can make something mean something, where we can connect with something eternal. I, Caesar wants to reign, live forever. Cicero wants to be in with the crowd. And we say, oh, that's, that's just so superficial, so pathetic, so sad. Because the great, the great answer is the one who rules everything comes into our mess and he hangs around with people who don't even deserve it. And he says, I'm going to save you. I haven't come to judge. I've come to save. He cried out, you know, mm. he says, if, you believe, if you've seen me, you've seen the one who sent me. He comes through the chaos. He says, I'm from behind the chaos and it's good. Come, come to me. I'll save you. Let's get back into the chaos, Ben. Um, we're, I'm gonna have to. I'm gonna have to wrap up here in a second. Let me just ask you a personal thing. Chaos. You're staying at home, uh, kind of self quarantining in London yeah. because of a fear your son with a cough, and you're being super responsible. Give me an update. And to, the, to those who don't know, Ben. Ben is a pastor of a church reaching out to Muslims in downtown London, and so he's living in. Um, I love it. You call it the estate, which to us, we associate with money, but more of a project kind of building to um, 
to people who aren't naturally apt to uh, to really listen to this message at all. But how are you feeling and how are you doing in the middle of this shutdown? The government said recently that, as I, as you say, I'm trying to plant this church, but the, the, the local people don't pay me. So I have to have a job, which is I, I run an organization called Christian Heritage London, where I take people on tours and I release a podcast. We run events and I give walks and so on. But uh, they, the government recently said, oh, you can do guided tours for up to 30 people. And it's great. So we we're just about to do that. And uh, and then and I've just started to give some walks and tours last week to a group of lovely Americans. And then um, my son has got a cough. And when you get a cough, you have to uh, you have to stay in until you can get a test. And what's happening now is we're trying to get a test for my son. But the everyone is trying to get a test at the moment. Uh, so you can't get a test. So uh, that's the nature of the situation is, yeah, good time to use the word chaos uh, man well we appreciate you anybody who uh is going to london you can't miss christian heritage tours that that just was one of my favorite and it's christian heritage london uh when you look it up <clears throat> but we have a new category or movement in recent days which is called the cancel culture and like so many new categories, it takes on definition over time and it'll gain followers and opponents and it'll morph into the history books through the eyes and the perspective of the author. It's become associated recently with tearing down of statues, rehearsing the sins of key historical figures and villainizing previous, previous historic icons. I strangely have appreciation for both sides of this more than rhetorical battle. Churchill, in a speech before the House of Commons on January 23rd, 1948, said, For my part, I consider that it will be found much better by all parties to leave the past to history, especially as I propose to write that history myself. Some truth is found in Churchill's humor. In a real sense, history is often written by the victors. Mm. I'd suggest that canceling culture is the wrong answer to incomplete history. There's so much more to be gained by learning more and digging deep and learn from the lessons history provides. Mm -hmm. Let me let you in on a secret in case you haven't been told. History is never neat and clean. Mm -hmm. It just isn't. And there are more than two sides. And they aren't of equal weight. If your knowledge of history is to divide countries and people and movements into one of two columns, good and bad, you're really going to miss it by a long shot. The Englishman John Locke made wonderful contributions to intellectual thought and philosophy and politics and more. And American founders admitted their indebtedness to him. He was a pioneer of major proportions. John Locke also participated in justifying slavery. Some like to think our founders had in mind a country like what the United States is now. I seriously doubt it. For them, religious freedom meant keeping the government from telling you what church to go to. It included not excluding Catholics. Do you know what that meant? One, count it, one Roman Catholic signed the Declaration of Independence. Charles Carroll was his name. That was their idea of diversity. This was a group of Congregationalists, Episcopalians, and Presbyterians with a couple of Deists and a couple of Unitarians. In other words, it was a group of very white, very English, and very Christian men who somehow came up with a document setting the foundation for the most inclusive nation the world has ever imagined. 
Did they get it all right? <clears throat> nope. Were they perfect? By no means. Was there room for improvement? They even included ways for that to happen. From a perspective of church history, um, the church speaks to culture. Sometimes it imitates culture, and sometimes it becomes the culture. Ironically, the same is true of individuals. What is the right thing now? Perhaps it's time to take a lesson from Ecclesiastes. <coughs> Excuse me, I have that cough, Ben. It's easy to be wrong. It's easy to be arrogant. It's easy to get impatient with those who know less than we do. And it's certainly easy to criticize churches for the sinners trying to find their way in the world. But I think I'll join them. It's better to go along rather than to go alone. <laughs> As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And you, it's worth a thought. This is John Bash. Thank you. Well, <laughs> that was worth a thought for sure. And brings us to the end of this edition of Church Hurts and. Next week, it's rumored we'll be walking on the edge of controversy, stirring the pot of denial and finding movement of the divine in unlikely places. Be sure and join us. 